0: By now, listeners should be well aware that the Dade Battle, the fight that started active engagement in the Second Seminole War, is commemorated each year in the first full weekend in January with a military reenactment. Seminole War's foundation president, Steve Rink, advises listeners that select groups visiting the Dade Battle Memorial Trail sometimes encounter living historians and sometimes encounter war reenactors. These include a trader or settler, Seminole Indians, Black Seminoles, and an immigrant army private, just trying to keep his head down and get out of this war alive. Steve Rink, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Thanks, Patrick. Tell us about these living historians or military reenactors one may find. We have, as you say, living historians along the Fort King Trail that meet these folks. We have a
1: civilian who does a traitor type of concept. We have gentlemen or two who might portray a Seminole Indian. And then there's there's the military uh, soldier who talks to the folks going down the trail, and he's a, a fellow named uh, Paddington McCormick is his name, as a matter of fact, and I'm the, I'm the lad who does one. Uh, I'm an Irish immigrant to see, from over to the United States in the 1830s, uh, trying to find a better life for myself, and it'd be even more importantly, be able to make some money to send home to the family back on Ireland, uh, yeah, I know I'll never see them again, because it's a one-way trip, We don't have not have enough money to afford to go in both ways. But Paddington McCormack, uh, his friend him Paddy, see, he's a good old Irish boy, as uh, a good number of the troops were at that time, you know, sir. Uh, up, to, up to 40% of the army in the 1830s and 40s came from Europe and elsewhere. Canada, but mostly from Europe. And, and the lion's share of those lads who came from Europe were Irishmen, you see. And so Paddy is one of those folks who come in. And he enjoys talking to the people who come up to 14 Trail and asking about what's the experience of it down here? What, what happened on this trail? Tell me a little bit more in private.
0: Paddy came from Ireland to New York. How did Patty get into the United States Army? Was it just the luck of the Irish?
1: You might say so. Patty came from County Derry. Lived there all of his life. But came over on a ship and he landed in New York Harbor and he gets off the gangplank and there's a better looking like a well, like the like the soldiers that we have in the second Seminole war in a blue uniform he had me name down He called me over and he says paddington mccormick are oh you yeah. he says would you like a job in the united states I said, sure i would he says well how would you like a job in the army we give you food every day we get the clothes and a draft place to sleep at night i said they could pay too sure you could paid six dollars a month so i said sign me up but of course i had to put the x down where he showed me because I cannot read or write, you see. I never learned to do those things back home in island. so I signed my name, and, and the fellow told me, he says, Well, he says, you come back now. This is Friday. He says, You come back in here at five o'clock in the morning on Monday, and we'll, you know, we'll get you suited up and we'll get you going. So that's what I did. That's how it happens. That's how I became a soldier in the U.S. Of Army.
0: Where did you think you were going to do your soldiering? <laughs> Well, I didn't have much of a mind about it. I mean, I
1: looked around and never been to the United States before, and all I did was go down in the streets in New York, and I thought that most of New York looked like uh, most most of the country looked like New York. <laughs> I had no idea that there was wilderness out there. Uh, I had heard stories, but I didn't really experience it myself, and I didn't really see it there too because I got back on a boat. And he said, "Well, we're going to send it down to the territory of slaughter and he says, oh, you'll love it from Florida. It's south of here. It'll we'll take you several days to get there. He says, but they call it the land of flowers, and the milk and honey dripping off the trees. You'll love it. Plenty of game, and the temperature is moderate all year round. Well, your friend, I tell you, when I made it to Florida, I came in actually from New Orleans. I went around the whole peninsula of Florida and went into New Orleans first. It's attached to General Games, you see, goods company. So when I finally arrived in Florida, I said, I don't like it. It's like a jungle. It's, it's hot all the time. And the uniform of the water, oh, I mean, stars, it's a, it's a woolen uniform. And it's hot. And we only get to change it to twice a year. Oh, it's, a, it's a terrible it's, it's feeling. And you, you go in the bush around Florida, the jungle of Florida, and you don't know what you expect here. It's uh, serpents. Frogs, alligators, Seminoles, and all other forms of both of their pilots. You, know, you could be a, a heathen hiding behind every other palmetto. You don't know what to expect. I hate it in Florida. I had no idea it would be like this. I'll tell you what, I do. Most of the boys I served with wish they could be anywhere else. It's
0: not a pleasant place to be. What type of action have you seen here in Florida? You're serving under General Gaines? Well, yes.
1: Yes, I I'm General Gaines and so General Gaines came across the bay of the, the Glorious of Mexico and landed at Fort Brooke in the early period of 1830 in January. His uh, assignment was to go north on the Fort King Trail and to discover what happened at the poor site, the, the Melancholy site, which is now the massacre site of his men. So I was attached to him there. Well, he, he saw some seminales along the way, not many. Uh, I was told that Uh, Before this whole work started up, but there were Seminoles living outside of Fort Brooke, and they were coming. They even did some work for the soldiers once in a while. but uh, Not now, not since they went on this terrible rampage and killed these poor soldiers. Uh, You don't see many of them along now, but you see some once in a while, focus head around the trail. They know where we are. They follow us. But I've not not come in contact with one directly myself.
0: How are they feeding you?
1: Oh, they feed us Oh, that was a the promise. They feed us three squares a day. The problem is it's all the same things every day. Oh man. Yeah. Each soldier is issued uh, a daily issue of one and a quarter pound of fresh or salt beef, uh, one and a quarter pound of cornmeal and I guess some salt pork or bacon. And 18 ounces of hard bread is another thing. Of course we we have our we have our issue of vinegar and we have the salt and sugar and they give us coffee. It's not very good coffee. That's not like the officers get. They put chicory in ours and try to stretch it around a little bit more that way. But but they try to take care of us. you know, they, they, we, we have to drink one and one quarter ounces of vinegar every day. And I asked the camp surgeon. I said, doctor. I said, why is it that we drink the vinegar? And he says, oh, in case that we discourage you, don't you know, Patty? I said, oh, I didn't know that. I said, That's a grossest thing. He said, yes, yeah, sure you do it. And, and they, They help us to be clean, too. They really emphasize cleanliness. Uh, We're required to wash our face and hands every day, Uh, our our feet uh, at least twice a week. We have to shave and brush our hair every day. And they want us to bathe weekly, you see, but, uh, we're figured out how manoeuvres that may not be as possible as he is back back at the fort. And, uh, uh, I tell you one thing. Is, is something too is that they issue. They're very generous. They issue one parcel of soap and one toothbrush for every eight men to shower You see. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, 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 they took me out to be the, the person to actually carry the toothbrush. You see, because uh, most of the Irish boys, we have our own teeth, all of our teeth. Most of the other settlers the uh, they are launched from Ireland, have lived on a farm too long, or they don't. They don't have many teeth in their mouth. In there's fact, there's a, there's a regulation in the Army that you have to have at least two opposable teeth to be a soldier. Uh, uh, I didn't understand why that was, but I went out for my first uh, time on the field uh, firing a musket. You have to have two teeth to bite down on your cartridge uh, to put your gunpowder and your shot into your musket and load the fire. So if you couldn't do that, you wouldn't be much good in the field, you say.
0: You have two opposable teeth.
1: I do. I have more than two. I have almost, pretty much a whole mouth that is full of teeth. And I asked the doctor, I said, why is that so? He says, oh, I, back on the farm in Ireland is you have a milk cow. Sure, and drinking milk every day. He that's why you have good teeth. And I said, doctor, I don't understand. Why is drinking milk making you have good teeth? And he says, Patty, it's 18 and 36. We don't know why this is. We just know that it happens, so keep on doing it. Drink milk when you can. So we don't find milk very often, but we try to drink it as we can.
0: What is a typical day like for a soldier? They put some training in you? They have you march around?
1: They do. They do. They, they train us in the in Napoleonic tactics of warfare. Uh, you know, they, have, they, they, they train us to. the manual of arms is was written by, a, by General Winfield Scott back in, the, back in the last war that they said they fought here in the 18 and 12. They train us in those. They go through a 20-step regiment and load and fire your muskets. I haven't I haven't mastered it yet myself and the sergeant keeps on getting on me for that but I keep on trying the best I can to master. It. and they, they do we they do, they do marches they do uh, they have drills every day. they have active drillers. And uh, other than that if we're, we're at the fort, we're at some kind of a capped encampment. we have uh, jobs to do they, we, we do basically whatever
0: we're told to do whatever the officer of the day to assist us are duty. I saw the Fort Foster. I saw all these tents outside the fort. And I thought, well, you have a contained fort here. This is where you want to keep the troops inside. But no, the troops were sleeping outside. That's very strange to me.
1: Well, I was never stationed at Fort Foster. I went through the area from going to Fort Brook on our trip to Fort King. By the was the station there. But yes, I know what you mean. I've seen those tents as well. In different places. There's a the room that they say. That they had the same thing happened up at Fort King when I arrived there. I saw the multiple tents around the outside.
0: Tell me about these groups that come through. They ask a lot of questions, don't they? All the groups are marvelous, you see.
1: darling. Uh, these are officers, or aspiring officers sometimes. And, 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 and they come from all the military branches. But you never know what they are, or what their rank is, or what branch they're in, because they come in the civilian talk, you see. They're not in uniform. And that's one of the things that I do when they approach me. I like to be right them and I chide them a little bit. Because they're walking up the 14 trailer and never know when there's going to be an Indian dropping out on them. And I say, well, here you are in the wilderness, and you're marching up with just, you are not know, even in uniform. What kind of a soldier do you they claim to be? And oftentimes they have females with them as well. And of course, I chide the men about all and I said, to bring the women out here too. And have you no know, care? Have you no know, honor to protect the women from the heathen out in your and they'd have a good laugh at that usually. But yes. Yes, these are military groups and they're the ones who ask the best questions of this. So they're already schooled. They already are familiar with the battle and they get there. As they said they have to they have to read it in their curriculum book. Just like good schoolboys and girls they read it read about us. So they know pretty much about the battles that's why I try to convey to them the life of a soldier and what it was like to live in the eighteen thirties in Florida. Hmm. That's my main goal, is to do that, to give them an idea about what it was like. Of course, I fire my musket, allow them to see and hear the
0: retort and smell the gunpowder in the morning. And so, yeah, they have a good time. How does your musket stand up to the rifles that the Seminoles were using? Oh, well, the musket they were using, you see, it was an 18, model
1: 1816, 69 caliber, smooth bore a musket. A smooth board means it has no grooves in the inside like a rifle does. Uh, the rifle is a lot more accurate because when it fires its projectile, it's spinning like a top when it comes out, you see. Yeah. So it's a lot more accurate to go where you're shooting at. But the musket that we have, <coughs> is the technology from it is about 140 years old. It it's back to the 1600s, the basic mechanism behind a flintlock musket. But of course, the Indians, most of them, had three rifles to see. They get them from the Spanish or the British traders to go through the territory of Florida. So they're lighter. Uh, they don't not fire as as heavy of a shot, but when they do fire something, they're more likely to hit. But they're aiming at. Their aim the range is not as great as ours, uh, but it's it's a lot more deadly. And besides that, they don't fight, my gentlemen. You see me there. They don't do that. We were trained, as I said, in the Napoleonic in the, in the Corps, where when you face the enemy across the field of battle. Now, one half of the troops takes a knee and the other half stands behind them when one fires a volley of muskets as they're reloading, the other one fires, as they reload the first one does, you get the idea. And so they don't understand, and they're, and they're and we're, we're schooled and we're trained to see the enemy in front of us marching toward us. These Seminoles do not Fight like gentlemen. They hide behind trees, even in the trees, you see. And they fire at us. We can't sue them ahead of time. We see a wisp of smoke, We'll be train our muskets toward them, toward that spot, but they're not there anymore. They went somewhere else to hide like dogs underneath the bush. So we really can't. There's no way. It's like it's, uh, somebody said it's jungle warfare, that the United States uh, Army never experienced that before. It's something that we have to really examine. I think our officers and our leaders have to examine that in the future and maybe redesign how we, how we conduct ourselves out in the field in a jungle like Florida.
0: Patty, did it give you an alcohol ration? Well, it might not. But it's not really a ration,
1: you see. Uh, the officers had their rations. Uh, but uh, mostly, if, if we were to, um, sometimes we do a little favor for the officers here or there. Uh, we could get paid extra by doing that, you see, too. Uh, we could even uh, give up uh, one meal a day and earn anywhere from 15 to 18 cents more for doing it. But if we did an extra job for the officers, something beyond military duty, and they ask what kind of reward that you want, they might get a little bit of the whiskey, a shot of something. Uh, but it's not Irish whiskey, I tell you that. I really miss that. It's something else. Uh, it's, it's some kind of an island concoction, they call it. They call it rum. They get it from uh, from Cuba or somewhere down there below the, the, the Keys of Florida. Uh, so we don't know. But they get better rations. They get better rations. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, though, since we have to drink vinegar every day, sometimes at the fort, the uh, quartermaster uh, likes to steal his own. So some of the Irish boys, uh, they might volunteer to assist him in that process, you see. And the distillation process goes through several steps, you might know. One of those steps has an alcohol content to it. So uh, the quartermaster may look the other way as we uh, as we test test the batch and see if it's uh, good enough to go
0: through. <clears throat> um, Patty, you signed up. They tell you how long you were signed up for. Three years, they say. Three
1: years. And but, you know, they have been good to the promise that they get paid every month. Six dollars a month. We line up at the paymaster and call us the name. It comes up and tell you are next. And I come up and he might hand me, he says, here's $3 and maybe $0.47. Cents. I said, well, where's the rest? He says, well, he says, I got the camp set right here next to me. And He wants to get paid for playing cards and maybe a plug of tobacco on it. Maybe a quarter cone of sugar or sugar for got a sweet to it. you see. So the paymaster takes that and, and washerwoman a woman from the town. Mm. She says, I wash all your whites. So I need to get paid for that. I need to get uh, 67 cents for the month's work. So I'm looking to get $1.50 maybe out of it. And if that to make it matters worse, before you get your pay, whatever's left, they will remove a dollar. One dollar per month and put it aside and they'll hold it for us. So they make sure that when we do get mustered out at that eventual time in the future, we get that money reimbursed to us, you see, so we don't go home empty pockets. And they say they're doing it for our benefits. I ask, what does it mean? He said, well, you know, you soldiers, you, you tend to tend to waste your money. You go and you gamble and you, you, you buy it on things that you shouldn't. But we make sure that you leave the army one day. You'll have some money to take home with you. But you know what, my friend? I don't believe that's why they take the dollar away. I think they take it away as a deterrent against desertion. That's what I believe they do. Because if a soldier knows that the army still has some of his money waiting for him, when he is mustered out, he's not going to desert. I wouldn't do it. Well, where do you want to go home when you're done with this? When I leave this man's army, I won't be settled in a slaughter.
0: that's for sure. It'll be some civilized locale that I want to make. Patty, thanks for taking the time to chat with me about a soldier's life.
1: Well, me you darling. I hope you have the blessings of the Irish with you in the future
0: patty thank you very much i'll go on my way and look for steve so
1: how'd you like patty
0: i liked patty i do too
1: he's annoying us all get out sometimes, but i like him steve
0: i'm giving away the game here but as a seminal war reenactor why did you choose to portray a irish immigrant private since the majority of the uh, soldiers during that time the u.s army were
1: from other places mostly in europe and uh of oh, that number, most of them came from Ireland, and I just decided to say, well, since they were a whole boatload of Irish in the army then, I thought I might portray one, an Irish immigrant. Started in twenty tens.
0: How did your understanding of the Dade Battle change after you became a reenactor at the Dade Battle?
1: I became more interested in the details of it, uh, not just the battle, but the details about the individual men involved on both sides. So I became interested in uh, reading more about it, mostly from the Civil War's Foundation's doc and going to different kinds of sites during the year where they had battle reenactments, Okeechobee, Fort King, Payne's Creek, places like that I would go to and talking with different people. And just to be a little fraternity that you're in, you see the same people each time you go somewhere and you just kind of follow along with them, like old family. It's handy because you get to know each other. In the town times, you're talking in the camp during a meal or in between battles, and you learn more about the times and about the people and about the accoutrements and about the strategies. A lot from each other, just having casual conversations.
0: What type of preparation goes in for reenacting at the Dade battlefield or at other battlefields?
1: There's different kinds of reenacters. Some authors that talk about reenacting in first, second, and third person. Most of the people that I know, if they're talking to the public before or afterwards. They do what's called third person, which means that they live in the here and now, and they are simply portraying personage from that period of time. And so they can answer any kind of question. They can base it upon current events and that kind of thing. I choose not to do it that way. I choose to do it as a, in the first person. So when I'm talking with people who are not part of our group, these are visitors to the event, I speak as if that I know nothing past 1835. And I talk about the politics of the time, I talk about the popular culture, if I have that much of an opportunity to talk about it, and I talk about what a soldier's perspective would have been of the foe that he's fighting, the politics of the time. Those aren't necessarily my viewpoints now, but I try to portray it as it would have been for the typical soldier of the period. And how you get to know that is, is simply to do research. Read. You read all you can get. I can't stress enough talking to other fellow reenactors because most of them have been doing it longer than I've been. And I respect these people. These are my friends. And speaking with them, you get to know if how you portray it is fully accurate or if there's some holes in your story. If part of your uniform isn't really as it should be, once you find it out, you take steps to have that corrected. Because your main goal as a first person an actor is to try to convey as much as humanly possible what the person who lived at that time period, who was in that situation, felt. What their opinions were. What, how they felt about what was happening around them and in the nation and in the world. Um, and try as best as you can to uh, emulate that kind of spirit. Of course, you can never really know, for 100%, what it was like. Nobody can ever do a perfect first-person rendition because you aren't living in 1835. You haven't experienced firsthand all of your life what they did. You just try your very best because of your research, because of your sharing with others. Try to convey as much as you can the authenticity of the moment.
0: Although you've been portraying a Seminole Wars private for only about 10 years, your affiliation with Seminole Wars Matters goes back much further, hasn't it? Yeah, I wasn't a member of anything
1: prior to that, but uh, I was in contact and I was friends with a, a gentleman named Frank Walmer for well over 40 years. And he's inspired me to think about Florida history and about the history around where we lived in particular. Right now, I live less than a mile from the Fort King Road. And Frank had property on the Fort King Road, and so that kind of tipped me over the edge a little bit to get busier and to learn more about that
0: aspect of our history. You knew Frank Lauer for more than 40 years, and you didn't get involved as a reenactor until 10 years ago? What took you so long?
1: Well, that's because of my work and my family. I was a teacher, then I became a school administrator, had a young family, and wanted to do things with them and so I just didn't have the time because uh, my way of looking at it is, is that uh, if you want to get involved in something uh, you need to be able to afford to, to have the time to devote to it and I didn't think that I had the time that I would like to put into something like that so I just didn't get involved in any kind of a big way. After
0: I retired then I was wide open. You were a high school teacher. I, I can't imagine what the subject was that you taught. Well, try because it wasn't history, it was science.
1: I was a zoology major at the university. uh, My first love always has been history, uh, American history particularly. I got involved in the science aspect of it because I thought that there might be more job opportunities as a scientist than as a
0: historian. And I was right. Got a job right away teaching school for science. Uh, Did you have the opportunity to ever teach history? Yeah, several
1: times I had the opportunity to do it. When there was a problem with some. scheduling and with personnel issues and so forth, I was able to teach a section of American History once in a while, not very much. I it out of field according to Florida because I was one methods course shy of being certified in history. If you just teach one course per day during the year, out of field you were okay at that time. And I ended up liking that, that one course per day more than I did the other four that I was teaching in science. I used to teach history uh, linked with science all the time. I remember many times uh, starting a unit, for instance, one on continental drift. And I took about 15 minutes talking about Alfred Wegener, the, uh, a German scientist who actually developed that theory initially. And then one of the kids raised his hands and said, Mr. Renke says, is this a class of history or science? And my answer was yes. You have to understand how these things developed first before you learned about the concept.
0: What aspect of U.S. history were you teaching? When I was teaching it, it was colonial history, up to the Revolution, eighth grade class. So how did you get your interest in the Seminole War period, which is roughly the first half of the 19th century? Because of my
1: friendship with Frank Walmer. He wrote several books. He wrote Massacre in the 60s, and he wrote a later one called Days Last Command in the mid-90s. I had copies of both of them. I used to be one of his neighbors, as a matter of fact, years ago. And uh, our kids played together, our wives were friends, and they did clip things together. And um, I didn't see him a lot, but I saw him often enough, and I was in contact with him and others like him often enough to really develop a passion for something. And I was interested in what was happening locally, and I still am. I enjoy
0: locally connected history more than anything else, and uh, that was what I was full of. Prior to donning the sky blue uniform of the Seminole War era private, had you been going to battle reenactments? one Seminole War battlefield reenactment, and that was a day battlefield. What
1: was your impression? Oh, I loved it. It wasn't there to like. They had this marvelous, dramatic rendition coming in, uh, marching from stage left onto the field, outdoor, uh, amphitheater-type arrangement. They had horses, they had cannon, they had soldiers and Seminoles, they had pyrotechnics. My wife and I were sitting on a blanket there watching the whole rendition plus two people that were microphoned and were one Indian, one soldier, giving the play-by-play, blow-by-blow rendition to the audience.
0: Uh, So what year was that that you went to the battle reenactment? It was in 2008. Then two years later, you put on an army privates uniform from the era. What did you think you were getting into?
1: I had seen the battle several times, and I was a member of the board for a, a year prior to getting into that uniform. And uh, so, I, so I knew what to expect. I mean, I knew what was out there. I just wanted to get involved in the midst of it myself. The irony of it is, is that that particular year is the year I became president of the board. And as such, I found it more difficult to actually participate in the battle each of two days because I was involved in the administrative aspect of it, trying to work it. So it ended up that I only did the battle one day out of two each year.
0: But I still enjoyed it. Ross Lamoureux, who's the president of the Dade Battlefield Society, often portrays Captain Gardner, one of the officers in the Dade battle. Did you ever portray a particular historical figure or did you just portray a generic soldier?
1: Just a generic soldier. It was infantry though, and uh, not by any kind of willful design. It was just the fact that the tailor, who designed my uniform, asked me if I want the infantry white piping. And I said, sure. Thinking about the fact that there were only 10 infantrymen at the date battle. Now I like that
0: because you just kind of stand out from the rest. <laughs> was Ransom Clark infantry? Ransom Clark was artillery. He had the yellow piping. But lately you've been portraying Ransom Clark as Frank Lauer passed the baton to you. So have you changed your uniform's piping from white to yellow?
1: Yeah, but now I know, but. Uh, Rather than use a yellow magic marker on my uniform, uh, I just know that most of the people
0: out there don't know the difference anyway, so I'm going to go ahead. So Ross and Archie Marshall aren't on your case.
1: No, they haven't said anything. They don't
0: dare. Of course, I talked to Ross and we went into about making sure that the uniforms are correct. But we didn't get into as much of saying, make sure if you're playing infantry, you have the infantry and not the artillery. We were talking more on not showing up in a Civil War uniform with a kepi and so forth. What have you been able to teach the public and what have they been able to teach you from their questions and observations? Well,
1: one of the things I taught the public right away, standing in front of them in my uniform, I pointed out the white piping was not artillery. (laughs) I talked to them about that right away. What I always began with was the true statement that as I go out to the schools, particularly elementary schools, oftentimes I was asked a question similar to this. Are you a Yankee or a rebel? And I would answer yes. kids would look rather quizzically, and I would explain that the 2nd Seminole War happened a full quarter century before the Civil War began, uh, and that the people who were in a regular infantry or uh, artillery uniforms were army regulars, and that means that they could from any place in the country or overseas. I began teaching it that way, and I found out that having been a teacher, it's a lot easier talking with the public asking things of them, uh, responding to their questions, than if I had just come on just cold. I was accustomed to that kind of environment. The questions that they've asked me depends upon their perspective, their point of view. I know, too, there was uh, there was one young man, a high school student from a, from a local high school one time, and they asked me, he says, uh, I just don't know what to believe out of somebody who's wearing the blue uniform. And I said, well, you know, I said, uh, this blue uniform, like you say, uh, is it's very similar to the uniform that Robert E. Lee wore when he was a West Point cadet. The young man looked at me and says, it is? I said, yes, and to so me, or change. So again, it's your point of view, your point of perspective, what you're coming from, the kind of questions that you would ask. And I answered them honestly, and uh, tried to point to the idea that this war, the Second Seminole War, for most people, is a whole new concept that, that they haven't really considered, they haven't been introduced to, and even though we at uh, the Battlefield and some of the Wars Foundation and others have been portraying it for uh, well over a quarter century, at uh, war, 40 years, people still don't understand what it was, what happened, and why it happened. So we're constantly trying to educate the public
0: about the wars and about the, the impact that it had on American history in general. So unreconstructed Southerners can actually say, oh, this is pre-Civil War. Oh, Southern Yankees were okay. Yeah, Brian Cepeda has portrayed the Seminole side and the Seminole, we'd say, spokesman uh, at the Dade battlefield. And what he told me is he did it for a couple of years and that was fine, but what he really wanted to do was to get back into the fight. You've been in the fight, but then when Frank Lommer stepped back, you started doing Ransom Clark. Well,
1: I did that because of my friendship and my great admiration and respect for my he uh, began doing Ransom Clock in front of the public in 1980. In 1980, he was in his early 50s. And he did it every year, and, uh, just for a little. And He ended up doing it one of the two battle day He uh, had another person doing it. on on Saturday, he would do it on Sunday. And over the years, as all of us experience as we age, there are some infirmities upon us. For the last few years, Frank's legs were not as strong as they used to be, and he wasn't able to stand up there and and do the best job that he wanted to do because of his physical uh, disability. And he called me one evening, several years ago, and he explained to me that uh, he could no longer do Ransom Clark narration, couldn't stand there that long. And he asked me if I had somebody else in mind. So I said, well, Frank, I said, John, I have to give that some thought. He says, well, I have somebody in mind that I'd like to tell you who it is. And I said, who's that? He said, you. So I could have been knocked over by a feather. And uh, I said, Frank, I said, you think I can pull it off? And he says, I know you can pull it off. So uh, I was just so honored and so humbled by that. Of course, I agreed. and I promised Frank, if he would allow me, I would do it every year, uh, just as he's had done during the weekend on Sunday until I got to the point where I couldn't do it anymore. That's how that started. So now, I normally do the battle on Saturday, and another gentleman does the narration of Ransom, and then we
0: switch around on the United that. For our listeners who are not that familiar, please tell us the significance of Ransom Clark and why he's used as a narrator at this battle recreation. Ransom Clark was one of three, or perhaps four,
1: if you look at, at, at some people's observations, survivors of the battle on the military side. And he made it back to Fort Brook uh, from whence he came in Tampa, along with one other of the soldiers. He was the one who did the most talking, did the most reporting to his superiors and others about what occurred at the battle. He was wounded seven times, seven different places in his body. It was amazing that he even survived at all, but he did. And he was reassigned to duty and then shortly thereafter he was given a, a, what they would call today, a, a disability pension. Uh, he left the Army and uh, made his living for the next four and a half years going the lecture circuit around the area where he lived and into New England and elsewhere. He lived in up, upstate New York. Uh, Charles, 12 and a half sent a ticket to three people come in so he could regale them with his experiences at the battle. But he was also had it down in writing. He, he wrote, he wrote a, a pamphlet about his, his experiences. Um, we, we feel that some of that today has been embellished by him. But there's enough truth of what he said, and it was proven later about his uh, honesty about reporting. Because of Ransom Clark, and a little bit because of another Seminole chieftain's rendition, seemed to match up pretty well. And so we had used Ransom Clark's uh, reporting about what happened in the battle as the basis of what we do today. The basis of the books that were written by Frank Normer and those books are, are the basis of the production that we do every year in January at Dave Battlefield. So Ransom was uh, quite an interesting person. Didn't live long after the battle, just lived five more years. Made a big impact, at, at least for us.
0: Steve, at the Dade Battle reenactment, why does the narrator portray Ransom Clark, a foot soldier, to represent the Army side? For well, the audience is considered to be a survivor. The
1: spirit returning to the, the scene of the, of the battle. I do it just the way, well, not just the way, because nobody can do it like Frank Lomar did, but I do it in a similar fashion to what Frank started, he wrote the actual script on it, but I try to follow. His notion is that he has to come back every year to the site. He has to relive it. Maybe one time that, the, that his boys will win. Maybe they'll beat the Seminoles. Of course, they never do. But that's um, the idea about him coming back as a spirit and as a ghost. And so they don't really. He's, he's out there on the battlefield. He just stands in the midst of all the firing around him. But, of course, nobody can see him. He doesn't get hit because he's just a spirit. The same thing for the Indian just in narration. Pedro it, one of the Indians over the years, some of the Seminoles who have done that narration, and he has the same thing. He is a spirit out there talking about a Native American side and what their issues and what their perspective was. And the crowd seems to enjoy both of them. In fact, most of the comments that we've had after the battle was over have been that they really enjoyed having the narration by both sides. It gave them a better idea, a more full picture as to what they were looking at and what the meaning of it was.
0: The Dade Battle reenactment is in the Dade Battlefield Park, but not on the Dade Battlefield Memorial Trail. Why is that? It's offset a few hundred yards on the actual site. When the first public invitational started in 1980,
1: there wasn't a battle yet. It was just talking from soldiers and from Seminoles. It began about 1985, and it was still in the same area where the actual battle was. But they soon found out that it was just uh, too inconvenient. There wasn't enough room, because of where a road had been placed afterward, for vehicles to drive through a paved road, where the breastworks were that the soldiers had set up, or our copy of that breastworks. There wasn't enough room around there to really do a battle, let alone have uh, guests come to view it. And so much later, in the 1990s, there was a mound that was produced on what used to be a softball field in the park. And that mound eventually was created into kind of an amphitheater, and that's where the reenactment occurs today. So, it's on the same property, in the same location? No, it's impossible to do it in the same location on top of the grounds. But it's as near as we could get to try to give an accurate picture of what it was like. In fact, it's even more accurate in its appearance where it is now than we're going to do it on the battlefield because over the years, people coming in from the city of Bushnell, from the county of Sumter, and elsewhere beyond that, were using those grounds as a public park since the late 1800s. It became a state property in 1921, and over the years, people came in and began to cultivate more of the oaks rather than the pines that were there at the time. So actually, where we do the battle today has a lot more of the tall pine trees in that location that was really what it was like at the time that Major Dave and his men came through. So appearance-wise, in my opinion, it looks better where it is now, more authentic
0: where it is now, than if we were to go back to the actual battle site itself. On other weekends of the year, when the annual battle reenactment is not taking place, small groups can go to the memorial trail.
1: Well, the groups that have come through are school groups coming through at all levels of schooling. Community people, people who come in from one of the local clubs, had on Bushnell, the uh, Airstream Club has come in and done things, uh, ROTC groups. But the one that that I personally enjoy the most are the military people who come in with staff rides uh, on occasion. The first one, to my knowledge, started about seven to nine years ago, and that was the fall of the National Guard came through, but there's been a a really steady service of um, of military folks from the uh, Joint Task Force people up in Norfolk, Virginia. And they've come through and, and they have some of the best groups of all to learn about it because they are folks that are um, up-and-coming rising officers and in order to get qualified to be promoted, as I understand it, to flag rank to up, upper levels of their, their military experience that they had to take coursework. But part of the coursework involves staff rides and so DATE Battlefield is part of their curriculum because of the action that happened there and the lessons that they can learn today which has
0: similarities to what happened back in 1835. Steve Rink, thanks for joining us today for The Seminole Wars. It was a pleasure. I'd like to talk to you again sometime. I've got more information for you. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.SummonAWars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Summon Wars podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation, 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden. Roast 'Em, provided by Kind Permission of Rudy Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole win, by Jed Merum and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.